0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Season 4 of Jericho Road and a podcast that we're calling Living Water. I want to begin by saying something that I say to every third grader in our church. That is, the Bible is not just a book, but a library of books. In fact, the title means books, written over a thousand years by a thousand different actors. And as such, I think we just don't access the library enough. Oh, we stick with a few stories that we know or a few verses, while another thousand pages goes unread and unloved. So here, we're going to use the backdrop of water, or the lack of it, to learn some new stories, find some new people and adventures with remarkable relevance, and application for today. And in this episode, we're going to look at the capital city of Jerusalem. We know from the book of 2 Samuel that David made Jerusalem his capital city. What we might not know is that Jerusalem is a strange choice, on paper anyway. It has to do with location. Any Old Testament or Bronze Age city, and by Bronze Age, I mean from the time of Abraham, 2000 B.C., to David, which is 1000 B.C., any Bronze Age city must have four necessary components to make it a good spot. You need food. You need defense, like a wall or a hill. You need trade. You need to be on a good road. And you need water. This makes Jerusalem a lousy choice for a capital city. It's way out of the way, so trade is tough. Higher hills are all around it, so it makes it hard to defend. And its water source, the Gihon Spring, is on the outside of the city wall, which makes it vulnerable to attack. And adding to all these problems, someone else already lived there, so David would have to fight to get it. These people were the Jebusites. The city was called Jebus at the time, and the land that they lived on, the Jebusites, had been promised to Moses by God as the, quote, land flowing with milk and honey in the book of Exodus. But Joshua could not dislodge them from this hilltop fort, although he did defeat them in a coalition battle in Joshua chapter 10. So the book of Judges tells us in the very first chapter that they just sit on their hill smack in the middle of the tribe of Benjamin, unconquered for about 200 years. But along comes David, who, about a thousand years before Jesus' birth, attacks this city using the water source against them. More specifically, he exploits the water shaft leading from the Gihon into the fortified city. I'll read the passage to you. It's 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning with the sixth verse. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David. David had said on that day, Whoever should strike down the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind whom David hates. Therefore, it is said, quote, The blind and the lame shall not come into this house. Well, I'll stop here for a second and say all this blind and lame stuff sounds kind of harsh. I know war is ugly, but still. However, a very, very good theory has been proposed that helps. Canaanites would use this this phrase, the blind and the lame, as a battle oath. Specifically, they would line their soldiers up before blind and lame people to warn what would happen to them should they fail in their mission. So it's been suggested that this was a taunt even perhaps putting the blind and the lame on the city wall and inviting David's scorn. Anyway, it shouldn't be a distraction. David's army used the water shaft to take the city and finish what Joshua started. And Why is this important? Well, because 300 years later, King Hezekiah of Judah, with Jerusalem as his capital city, faced the same problem. We're going to go to a different place in our library now. This is the year 701 B.C., and Jerusalem is in the crosshairs of the mightiest army on earth. Knowing the water source was exposed, Hezekiah's team had to dig a 533-meter tunnel that connected the Gihon Spring with the Pool of Siloam, which is within the city walls, and protect the water source. And the clock was ticking, and the men ingeniously dug in a zigzag pattern in order to meet. If they had gone in a straight line, they might have missed each other, so they dug zig and zag and zig and zag until they meet in the middle. And as my friend Edan puts it, if this tunnel is not completed and the Assyrians destroy them, completely destroy them as they did the kingdom of Israel before, the Bible stops here. If this tunnel is not completed, there's no Jesus, no John the Baptist, no disciples. The dream is over. And while Hezekiah is protecting the water, he's also trying his hand at diplomacy and tribute. According to Second Kings chapter 18, when the Assyrian army was besieging nearby Lachish, Hezekiah offered a cash buyout of 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, words like talents don't mean anything to us moderns. We just figure that's Bible money. It's a vast sum. A talent is 3,600 shekels. It was so much money that they stripped the gold off the doors of the temple to pay it. And still the Assyrians came. And in an effort to demoralize the city, their field commander taunted them in their own language, saying in effect, Do not believe Hezekiah, and do not believe Yahweh. There has been no foreign god able to stand before me. A contemporary prophet, Micah, would write this and the fifth chapter in the sixth verse, which is an absolute opposite of the field commander's taunt. Micah 5, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The prophet's words meet the mightiest army on earth with kindness and humility and love. This is a different kind of country under a different kind of king. Well, we can find out what happened in the book of Second Kings in the 19th chapter. Verse 35, we're told this. That very night, the angel of the Lord sat down and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when morning dawned, they were all dead bodies. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria left, went home and lived at Nineveh. And he was worshiping in the house of his god Nisroch, his son's Adramelech, And Shahazar killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Erat. And his son Esar had succeeded him. So things didn't go very well for Sennacherib. He lost his army, and then he lost his life. But there is more to the story than just military strategy, because there's more to the Gihon than just military strategy. It was not merely the water source, but it was also very political. And to learn this story, we need to go back to David and the original capture of the city. In the first chapter of the first book of Kings, first Kings, King David has a problem, a big problem. Old David is near death finding it hard to be stay warm and to be comfortable. And one of his sons, Adonijah, is maneuvering to become king, although the throne had been promised to Solomon, his son. So David solves his problem by sending his son Solomon to a very special place. And I'll read it to you. This is First Kings chapter 1, beginning with the 32nd verse. King David said, Summon to me the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. And when they came before the king, the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. There let the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan anoint him king over Israel, blow the trumpet, and say, Long live King Solomon. I have my own story. A couple summers ago, while the nation of Israel was in a COVID lockdown with no tourists, I was able, through my friend, to write a letter to the government and get into the country and meet with some archaeologists who haven't had much else to do but find things during the COVID disruption. And I was able to climb down a shaft beneath the ancient city of David, the original part of Jerusalem uh, at first inhabited by the Jebusites, a shaft beneath the city uh, to a room some 300 feet from the Gihon Spring. And because there was a ceremonial oil press in the room and, and some different shelves and and a, a certain shape, if you will, it is believed that this was the staging area for that coronation. I was stunned when I learned how close I was standing to the vesting room of Zadok the priest. I was stunned when I considered that Solomon had been made king there. Even more exciting were more stories to unfold. There were mysterious triangular carvings in the stone floor suggesting grooves to hold an altar, a very old altar, an older than a Hebrew altar, a Jebusite altar, and a thousand years older than the David story altar. And it's very, very possible, and this is what was told to me as I had to sit down to take in the news, that this is the place, this is the place, they found it, where a priest king named Melchizedek blessed Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. We were there. Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the name Melchizedek has a meaning. Melki means my king is, and Zedek is righteousness. The name Zedek may well have been the dynastic name for the rulers before David because in the period of Joshua, the coalition general king was named Adonizedek, which is my Lord is righteousness. But the writer of Hebrews would suggest even more. In Hebrews chapter 7, beginning with the first verse, this King Melchizedek of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned one-tenth of everything. His name, in the first place, means king of righteousness. Next, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. For the writer of Hebrews, uh, this very thoughtful idea is that Jesus is our High Priest, but could not be a priest in the in the Aaronic line because he was descended from the throne of David, so his priesthood comes from Melchizedek, which the writer believes was a visit from God and a, a, maybe a heavenly visitation of some sort, and Jesus traced his priesthood now to this event happening in Genesis fourteen. Well, I think David did the same thing; this blessing of Solomon happened. 1,000 years after Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham, and it could answer a big question. It answers the question, why Jerusalem? A city that is hard to defend with no water outside except outside of its walls. Well, the answer is political theater. David needed his own Davidic monarchy, his own line to connect back to Melchizedek, just as he needed a city that connects back to Melchizedek. We have our own example at home. Washington, D.C. was originally a malarial swamp, but it connected both the northern states and the southern states. Jerusalem was a new and neutral capital city with roots to Abraham's own blessing. Which brings us to other political theater in our, the library that we call the Bible. There's plenty of political theater in the story of Jesus. The first three Gospels remember a triumphal procession on the last Sunday of Jesus' life. The Mount of Olives is very steep and it's hard to walk, and yet Jesus rode a donkey, which is something hard to do, in order to reenact what conquering heroes like the Maccabees, the priest-king warriors, did a century and a half before. You might remember the story. Uh, They rode a donkey into town and cleansed the temple, so that's how we celebrate Hanukkah today, uh, a restoration of the temple to something holy and beautiful. Jesus rode on the foal of a donkey into the temple on the last Sunday of his life and overturned the money changers, and quoting Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, my house has become a den of robbers. And that phrase, den of robbers, is familiar to us, but it's actually better translated cave of outlaws, this land down by the Dead Sea, a cave where, where you could get hurt down there, where people living outside the law lived down there, where bad men lived in bad places with no water. No, it was all more political theater, and that's the first three Gospels, as Jesus attacks the temple, doesn't cleanse the temple, but attacks the temple, calls it something ugly. The crowds will turn on him, and he becomes the Passover lamb. Well, John's Gospel is different, uh, but it also has political theater in it. John, if, if the first three Gospels center on the Passover, John's centers on another festival, Sukkot, which was the fall festival with an emphasis on water. Think of the stories that you know. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man beside water. In John chapter 9, he heals a blind man beside water. The pool of Siloam, the same water that saved the city some 700 years before. This healing of the blind man is, in fact, a remarkable story. It's the only story in any of the Gospels where someone is afflicted by birth. A scene so disturbing to Jesus' friends that they ask a question that is eternal. Who caused this? His sin or his parents' sin? They simply wanted some assurance, some some cause and effect for suffering and sin. They wanted an explanation for why bad happens in this world. So the man was blind from birth, but how they wanted to know and why. At home, I like to say that God can only speak to us in times of quiet and in times of pain, and we're rarely quiet. So instead of leading them through a formula or a theology lesson, Jesus simply reminds them that suffering is another opportunity to witness God's compassion and God's grace. As I've said at more than one funeral, in times of our own pain, God's own heart is the first to break. So he touches the man in the most intimate way. Spit and mud. Saliva believed to be antiseptic in their world, of course, but I like to think this was more elemental. Water from God's own mouth. And then to be washed in that old pool that reminded them of daily grace. This too is political theater. As Jesus reverses what David began. Healing the lame and healing the blind and not cursing them. Jesus is a new kind of king. Which leaves us with the question, how do we find the time to trust God? How do we let go and trust God? Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.
1: We hope you've been enjoying this season of Jericho Road as Rich helps us explore the world of the Bible through the lens of living water. If you're interested in finding more ways to catch these lessons, as well as other lessons from Rich and our other clergy members here at St. Luke's, be sure to follow us on Facebook and YouTube at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, Birmingham. There you will find daily and weekly prayers and lessons, as well as live recordings of our Sunday worship services, and these very Jericho Road podcasts. For those of you here in the Birmingham area, Rich also offers midweek men's and women's Bible studies. The men's Bible study meets on Wednesday mornings at 7 o'clock in Graham Hall. The women's Bible study meets on Thursday mornings at 10.30 in the Youth Commons. We hope you'll continue to find ways to engage with us here at St. Luke's, and we look forward to seeing you next week.